Welcome back to the Multicultural Middle Ages. This is Jonathan Correa Reyes, and I'm joined by Rita O'Mara. Today, we're very excited to welcome Charlotte Eubanks to our virtual space so we can have a conversation about medieval Japanese Buddhism. But first, introductions. Charlotte Eubanks is a professor of comparative literature, Japanese, and Asian studies at the Pennsylvania State University. They study the material culture of books and word-image relations with a focus on Japanese literature from the medieval period to the present. They have written on the relation between human body and sacred text in the Buddhist literary tradition in Miracles of Book and Body, Buddhist Textual Culture, and Medieval Japan, and on intersections of art and politics in the micro-history, the art of persistence, Akamatsu Toshiko, and the visual cultures of trans-war Japan. They are currently working on several pieces related to medieval Buddhist conceptions of sound. Thank you, Charlotte, for being here with us today. We're very much looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to pass the mic to Reed now to get us started. Hi, Charlotte. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the Multicultural Middle Ages. We are really excited to talk with you today about Japanese Buddhism. And perhaps a good way to start our conversation today is with some broad strokes and perhaps mm -hmm. a unfairly large question, but how would you define Buddhism? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am a follower and an ardent listener and proselytizer for multicultural Middle Ages. So y'all are doing some really, really neat work with the podcast series, and I think it's it's shaping the field. So, so hats off to you all. Um, so what is Buddhism? Uh, let's see. That's a that's a generously big question. How's that? I'll answer it quickly by saying, on the one hand, it's a major world religion with origins in South Asia about two and a half millennia ago, around the fifth century BCE. That's probably the most familiar way people think of Buddhism. It's also a really deep conceptual reservoir for thinking about language and art and violence and sound and the nature of reality. So it's a, a really interesting theoretical tradition. It's a generative matrix of world literary production. When I just taught a class on that. And it's also, I think at its core, a set of insights about the nature of suffering, the causes of suffering, the kinds of suffering we can avoid both for ourselves and for others, you know, ways to lessen collective suffering in this world. And then the kind of suffering that's just involved in, you know, living in a human body and being subject to the cycles of, of time. And so I like to think of Buddhism as all those different things combined. And I tend to not, you know, focus on it just as a religion or just as a literary production or just as a, a conceptual reservoir, but all of, all, all of those kind of working in concert. To situate us in time and place, since your specialty is medieval Japan, when and where are we talking about when we say medieval Japan? In other words, how do you understand the term medieval when applied to Japan? Another wonderfully big question. I'll give you a longer big answer for this one. So in the deep, you know, the depths of my heart, I'm a, I'm a literature person. And so when it comes to thinking about the world, when it comes to thinking about periodization and things like that, I'm always going to start with literature and, and look at what it tells me and move up and out from there. So when I'm working on medieval Japanese Buddhism, what I'm primarily working on are two forms of literature, two genres, sutras on the one hand and setsuwa on the other. 
So sutras, roughly speaking, are the teachings delivered by an enlightened being. Um, typically, that's the historical Buddha. And so they originate primarily in South Asia. But I'll just mention as an aside, sutras continue to be written today. Allen Ginsberg wrote one. Jack Kerouac wrote one. Right? There's a lot of sutras still being authored. So it's a living genre. In medieval Japan, though, it would have been understood primarily as um, enlightened teaching or teachings delivered by the enlightened being who was the historical Buddha. The other genre I look at is setsua, which literally means explanatory tales. And those are more particular to Japan. These are, for the most part, like compilations of legends and stories, sermons, poems, curious events, and other works, which are understood to provide some kind of commentary on or explanation of or illustration of teachings found in the sutras. So in some ways you can think of Setsuwa as a commentary literature, kind of unpacking sutras for a more local or regional audience. So to get to your periodization question, then in Japan, temporally speaking, the first major collections of Setsuwa, these explanatory tales, come from the early 800s in the common era. And some of the last major collections, the ones that continue to kind of shape and redefine the genre in interesting ways, were completed in maybe the early 13 or mid 1300s of the common era. So historians of Japan will recognize that time range as corresponding to what they call the Heian period. Heian period lasts from about 794 to 1180 or so of the Common Era. And then the second half of that time period, they would recognize as the Kamakura period, which lasts from about 1185 to 1333. So historians would then recognize those two time periods, the Heian and the Kamakura, as pointing to uh, cities. Heian is the modern city of Kyoto and Kamakura is the modern city of, of Kamakura. And those were the cities where the political government was situated. So they're going to index time periods on the basis of the seat of government. But if you look at literature, the time period that I'm calling medieval in Japan would be called Chusei, which is a back translation into Japanese of the English term medieval. It literally means middle worlds or middle time period. And that medieval word is just is useful because most people have a general understanding of what medieval is, more or less the time period that it, it accords to. Again, I'm using it as, say, basically 800 to 1300 of the common era. But it also gestures to a relatively stable underlying shape of Japanese culture that indexes a time that came before and a time that comes after right? the medieval. So the time that came before would be a long multi-thousand year like local tradition that doesn't have a writing system. And then you've got the importation of a writing system from China or from the Chinese continent. That's the before. The medieval period is really the mature digesting of this whole set of technologies and language skills that comes in from China and the creation of a mature vernacular tradition kind of arising from, from local culture. And then what comes after that is, of course, kind of a more early modern type of mindset with the growth of big cities and things like that. So we've got kind of this time period in between where Japan is, or cultures on the Japanese archipelago, are wrestling with the inheritances of material from the Chinese continent. And that includes writing, that includes Buddhism, that includes medical systems, that includes calendars, that includes all kinds of things. So it's a really kind of interesting time period to, to think about. And it was also the time period where Buddhism really became fully acculturated in Japan. I have a follow-up question. What are the archives for these materials? Where are the sutras and setsuas located? Are they accessible? There's two very different answers to that question. On the one hand, 
the archives are super accessible. There was a, a really massive effort in the 20th century, which saw the production of authoritative scholarly editions of major literary and religious works from pre-modern Japan. You have, for instance, a hundred plus volume work called the Taisho Shinsu Daizokyo, which is the Buddhist canon. And it's a modern standardized edition originally published in Tokyo between 1924 and 1934 in 100 volumes. Around that same time period, there was a second effort to really kind of standardize an edition of the Buddhist canon, the Chinese Buddhist canon, I should say, uh, Chinese language Buddhist canon, that included alternate texts. Like canon formation is always going to be picking and choosing, right? And so there's a second or alternative version of the canon that, that most people call the manjibon. And the manji refers to this symbol, uh, sun symbol, is what it looks like that's on the spine of those books. More recently, uh, C-Beta, the Chinese Buddhist Electronic Text Association, has done this wonderful, wonderful gift to to scholars <laughs> across the world by digitizing the whole Buddhist canon. So it's, it's fully searchable, um, digitized database of all these texts, uh, which includes sutras and commentaries and all kinds of things like that. And on the literary side, we also have, in the 20th century, these creations of scholarly editions, starting really in the mid-1950s in the post-war period for Japan, something of a national project to reclaim a different and positive version of the past that was maybe separated a little bit from some of the nationalism and fascism of the 30s and 40s, but still took a certain kind of pride in identifying a national canon. So you see multi-volume series like the Nihon Kolten Bungakutaike and the Nihon Kolten Bungakuzenshu, which are complete works or compendiums of pre-modern or, or classical Japanese literature. And those continue to be produced and revised up until you know, they're still being revised now, right? It's open-ended series. Some of the most recent volumes have come out in the 2010s. So on the one hand, it's very accessible, right? You can you can look at these authorized versions or authoritative versions of the text, and they're kind of in three registers where you've got a typeset version of the classical language in the middle, and on the top, you've got notes about vocabulary and culture and history and context. And on the bottom, you have a, a running approximation of a modern translation which makes it really easy to access these things. On the other hand, I mean, standardized scholarly versions are only going to give you one view of what a text is. And you lose a lot of nuance um, between different manuscripts and textual traditions. You lose all the visuals. You lose all of the material aspects of things like the, the kind of paper and the thickness of it and the dimensions and the type of calligraphy. You lose all the vocalized and embodied and ritual aspects of the texts. As you all know, as good medievalists, those are some of the yummiest and most delicious and awesome parts of, of looking at medieval literature. And so for things like that, you've got to dig around. They're not standardized in any way, right? Every temple has its own treasure house and its own collection of uh, archives and manuscripts and objects. Most of them aren't cataloged in any particular way. There's a couple places you can go. The Kanazawa Bunko, just outside of Tokyo, has got a collection of manuscripts that comes from a particular samurai family collection. And those are easily accessible and they've actually been cataloged and things like that. The Eizan Bunko in Kyoto uh, also has a, a more or less cataloged collection of Buddhist materials, but you do need a letter of introduction to get in. And then 
every little temple, every little place has got little manuscripts squirreled away in different spots. And there's a lot of work happening in Japan right now to kind of look in temple storehouses and collaborate with uh, temple custodians and priests to figure out what's there and how it might fit into the tradition. So there's a really neat group that has the fantastic acronym Frog Bear. I think it's from the ground up Buddhism and East Asian religions. And their whole point is like, let's go into a, a specific temple archive or a particular cave or a particular whatever it is and, and dig out what's in there and really kind of figure out what it says to maybe complicate or nuance some of these more scholarly editions. That's kind of the state of the art there. What a great acronym. What you're talking about here really brings to mind for me some of the images I've seen when working on South Asian manuscripts of these repositories of these sacred texts and sutras and just the material richness there. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is the transmission of text. Mm -hmm. So we might turn the conversation, I think, to talking about how Buddhism was transferred from India through the Chinese continent to the Japanese archipelago and talking about who are the agents that are bringing Buddhism to Japan. Yeah. So how did Buddhism transfer from South Asia to, to East Asia? You know, I mean, it's a combination of trade, politics, translation, diplomacy, technology transfer kind of things. Basically what happens is in the early centuries of the common era, you've got a number of Central Asian societies in conversation with each other across the Himalayas. So you've got these multilingual figures who are moving between what in our modern geopolitical identification would be places like Afghanistan and Tibet and China and India and Pakistan and right kind of uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, right? All of these kinds of areas are moving back and forth. And one of the things that happens is that you've got a group of Central Asian monks who begin to kind of work together in translation teams to render the Buddhist scriptures into a host of languages, Tangut, for instance, and Kitan and all these, all these languages. The language that, that really ends up becoming the mainstream for these translations is Chinese, because Chinese functioned and in many ways still does function as a kind of what Richard Fry would call a written administrative language. So the, it enables communication across a number of different cultural and linguistic groups um, throughout Central, East and Southeast Asia. And so the monks are working in teams then to move sutras and commentaries on sutras from South Asian languages into especially Chinese. And, you know, they do some interesting things. They decide to translate some words uh, and find local approximations of them. Sometimes they decide to transliterate words and just go for the sound value of Chinese. Different translators make different decisions. A single translator makes different decisions over the course of their, of their translation career. And, you know, those texts begin to kind of circulate. The Chinese state picks up on them as being key texts that are, that are useful for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and so you end up having things like Chinese or Chinese imperial um, diplomatic missions, bringing copies of the Chinese language sutras with them when they're traveling to what's now like the Korean peninsula or the Japanese archipelago or, you know, what's now Vietnam and stuff like that. And so that's kind of how the texts transfer through local vernaculars, but then also the people are going with them. So you've got not only texts, but also statues and religious practitioners are part of these diplomatic missions. So that's how it kind of moves all across that area. 
So with that in mind, you would characterize Buddhism in Japan as not at all an isolated phenomenon. It's really about these connections with other areas and regions and people. Absolutely. And, you know, throughout the medieval period, right, other than periods of extremes like civil war in Japan, for instance, right? But when uh, conditions permit, you get uh, regular diplomatic missions from the Japanese archipelago to the Chinese continent and vice versa. You've got Japanese monastics going to religious centers in China, like Mount Tiantai, to study with Chinese Buddhist masters, to collect scriptures and commentaries, to learn new rituals, to head back home. Um, some people, some Japanese monastics dream of South Asia. So they know of it as a geographical locale and they'll dream about going there. One of my favorite stories is about a monastic in Japan who dreams that his goal is to really go to the place where the Buddha delivered his first sermon. And he receives a literal dream from a local deity who says like, it's too far away. Why don't you just basically like rename everything here after all the places you want to go? <laughs> so you could just like you know, you want to go to Vulture Peak in, in, you know, South Asia where the Buddha delivered his first sermon, but like there's a peak right there that's just like a day's walk from your monastery. Why don't you just name that Vulture Peak and go on a pilgrimage there? And so he does, like he renames all of the, the local geography. And actually that happens uh, fairly, fairly commonly across Japan. Just like rename things and then we'll go on pilgrimage to them. That's incredible. Talk about sacred geography and, you know, <laughs> transposing it into the space that's accessible. That's that's absolutely fantastic. There's dream pilgrimage, but then to make the place where you're at the center, that's incredible. In some ways, it's super medieval and you see that kind of like aspirational pilgrimage, I suppose we could call it, like happening elsewhere in the world as well. But I think there's a kind of particular tweak to it that happens in Buddhism, which is the nature of scripture. And so in Buddhism, the sutra is not like a Bible in the way that, you know, the New Testament is a, is a sacred text to Christians or the Torah is a sacred text to Jews or the Quran is a sacred text to Muslims. A sutra is just a record of insight that is communicated by an enlightened being. Any, anybody can write a sutra, basically, right? If you have an enlightened moment of, of apprehension where you accurately understand the true nature of reality and you're capable of transmitting that understanding to another person in human language, if you're a human being, then that transmission is a sutra. And so you end up with things like the Heart Sutra, for instance, authorized, ritualized, completely acceptable versions of the Heart Sutra in 500 words exist, in 500 pages exist, in 500 volumes exist, and they're all understood as transmitting the same teaching in slightly different forms. And so one of the neat things that happens then is you get this sense that the material forms and vessels of insight are malleable, which I think is super cool. And that works for sutras and that also works for place names, right? Like if the point is to take a pilgrimage to a place where there has been insight, then if that place has had insight, you might as well just name it Vulture Peak and go there. Exactly. And thinking about the way how people mm -hmm. connect and transmit knowledge, but also from my understanding, many of the sutras also advocate for their own copying in a very self-referential way. For example, the Prajnaparamita or the perfection of wisdom mm -hmm. is often like, you must copy me and illuminate me and do all these things and protect me and read me. So there's the people transmitting knowledge, but then there's also these vessels taking on their own agency. Absolutely. So we've spoken about the malleability of the text and the all-too-real impact it can have on the landscape. 
could we turn now to the impact that Buddhism could have on the individual? Could you provide a general profile of what a medieval Japanese Buddhist devotee was doing that was, well, Buddhist in terms of specific beliefs or practices? And what aspects of their life would this religious identity have impacted? So things that you might do as a devotee or practitioner that mark you as Buddhist, right? You know, participating in Buddhist rituals. So that would be like attending events at temples, giving alms. There's a lot of particularly Buddhist practices around death because um, some of the more indigenous religious and spiritual traditions found death to be polluting. And so death was kind of pushed away or not not really accommodated in particularly nuanced ways in indigenous spiritual traditions. And so when Buddhism came on the scene and it evinced a comfort with death and a comfort with suffering and a comfort with things that might by the virtues of other spiritual practices be deemed polluting, then Buddhism became the go-to place for handling a lot of those things. So death practices. Some people become monastics. Um, that's primarily a male phenomenon in Japan, not entirely, but primarily. People are going on pilgrimages to sites. They're offering prayers either daily in their homes in front of a, an icon, for instance, or at temples. You know, if people are wanting to get pregnant, for instance, and having trouble getting pregnant, they might do an all-night vigil uh, at a temple. If they're wanting to break a fever, break their child's fever, for instance, they might go to a temple. Temples were closely associated also with medicine, particularly uh, Yakshi temples, uh, temples of the medicine King Buddha. <laughs> and so, right, participation in certain kinds of medical treatment was also kind of a Buddhist practice. And then sutra chanting is an area that I've been particularly interested in that a lot of people engaged in. And maybe we can talk about that more later. Following up on my previous question. Could you talk about whether there were any differences in worship practices across different categories of identity, such as gender, race, or social class? And seizing the opportunity to be more ambitious, let me ask, could a woman, for example, reach enlightenment? Is this allowed within the Buddhist belief system? Excellent question. So one of the, the historical Buddha in South Asia's first, not first converts, but one of his converts was his own mother, his own wife, right? And so there was a place for women as practitioners in, in South Asian Buddhism. And that tradition of having a space where people of all genders could be part of the Buddhist community and specifically part of a monastic community, a community of renunciants, is something that came with Buddhism as it left South Asia. In Japan, you did have very early on, shortly after uh, Buddhism's introduction, and again, Buddhism came into Japan as part of a diplomatic mission from one of the dynasties on the Chinese continent. And so when the Japanese state eventually adopted Buddhism as a state religion, they also established a state temple system and provided financial support and other logistical support for the foundation of monastic centers and nunneries uh, in the 7th and 8th centuries. But that kind of fell away in you know the next couple of hundred years, or it, not completely, but it really minimized and decreased over the next couple hundred years because the state kind of determined or they decided that there were insufficient number of Buddhist nuns to justify continuing uh, the practice at that same level. 
um, there did continue to be uh, official state support for things like uh, imperial nunneries for women in the imperial family who were not able to make good marriages, like right? they needed to have a respectable place to go. <laughs> that was a, a place they go. And um, so Laurie Meeks has written about that a lot um, in the pre-modern period. But the broader question of, you know, beyond what the state is willing to finance, what um, Buddhist teachings are willing to do in terms of thinking about the gender of enlightenment, which is, I guess, really what your question is about in some ways. Like, does does enlightenment have a gender? In some ways, the answer is yes. One of the teachings that comes is that there are visible physical characteristics for an enlightened being, and that enlightened being will have a beautiful voice that sounds like a Kalavinka bird, or bluish-green eyes, or like a really kind of fat, wrinkly neck. Another one, a penis that is sheathed the way that a horse's penis is. So, I mean, I think by that dictum, we're not going to have very many enlightened beings in the world, but <laughs> it's, right. I mean, I think if we read that a little bit more metaphorically, it's the idea that like this person is still a human being in the full sense of the word. They just maybe have taken that part of their body that most expresses lust and it has been more internalized kind of thing. Nevertheless, in both monastic and scholastic understandings of Buddhism and in, in lay practice, day-to-day -day practice, there was a kind of gendered and classed and real embodied sense of what, what Buddhist enlightenment could look like on a physical level. Some of the sutras, for instance, promise that if you, if you chant them regularly, you will have clean breath and straight teeth and, and again, a perfectly formed male member. Anyone listening out there who's looking for one of those, you know, chant some sutras, right? And that if you uh, deride them or or, or somehow curse the sutras that your teeth will get all snaggled and fall out and you'll have bad breath and, and those kinds of things. So there's a logic of cursing uh, that goes on there. And, you know, in practice, what that means is when people want to heal their bodies, one of the things they do as a religious practice, that's also a medical practice, is they engage in, in Buddhist ritual and sutra chanting in particular. There's a strong tradition for trying to change the physical universe around you also through Buddhist engagement, you know, bringing rain, for instance, or getting rid of an epidemic. Uh, and then there are also particular Buddhist stories that take up directly the question of gender. My favorite is the Dragon King daughter story, which is a really common one. So according to the story, and this is in the, the Lotus Sutra, let's see how to start this story. So the Dragon King is an interesting figure in Buddhism because he is often associated with having this perfect library of Buddhist texts that exists somewhere under the sea. And he has a young daughter who is, she's a dragon. She's not human. She's like this kind of animal-like being, like he is, both God and animal, right? This weird kind of amorphous, but unhuman type of being. And the question at some point becomes, what's the nature of enlightenment? How quickly can you achieve enlightenment? And the dragon king daughter at one point is talking to the Buddha's disciples in a sutra, in a narrative scene in a sutra. She's talking with the disciples and the disciples are really doubting her ability to reach enlightenment. And she says, well, if someone gives you a gift and you accept the gift, there you have it. Someone gave me the teachings. I accepted the teachings. What more evidence do I need to show you? And they hem and haw and they think like, oh no, you can't really have achieved enlightenment. And she was like, all right, so how about this? I will transform my body and you can see that I have a male member. And then I'm going to sort of apotheosize myself, right? And become this like visibly enlightened being. And so there's a lot of, of poetry about this Dragon King's Daughter that's written by women throughout medieval and early modern and, and contemporary uh, Japan and East Asia more broadly as really the site of hope. 
There's another fantastic scene that's very similar where, this is in the Vimalakirti Sutra, the lay believer, Vimalakirti is preaching. And the question is, he's not a monastic. So can he actually have achieved enlightenment? Does he have enlightened understanding? And um, one of the Buddha's foremost disciples, this guy named Manjushri, who is like the Hermione Granger of the Buddha world, right? He's like, I know everything. <laughs> he goes and he visits Vimalakirti. And Vimalakirti, who's this like lay believer, he's like a merchant, right? He's not supposed to really know anything totally schools Manjushri and Manjushri is like oh my god fine right like I admit you understand Buddhism and then even better we have this little side story that then happens we like pop into a corner in the room and one of the Buddhist disciples Shadiputra he's like the Ron Weasley he's a good guy he's a sweetheart not the sharpest tool in the shed you know it's just but just adorable and he's like I can't believe that this is happening and then boop this like goddess figure shows up in the corner and she's, I mean, like these goddess figures are these like really voluptuous kind of erotic fertility type figures. And she starts this side conversation with him. He's like, I don't think I can understand what's going on here. This is so confusing. And she's like, let me break it down for you. <laughs> like, let me unpack it for you. And he's like, it sounds like you understand what's going on, but you can't possibly be enlightened because not only are you not human, but you're a woman and you're like the super sexy form and stuff like that. And she's like, here, let me sprinkle some flowers on you and they're going to stick on you if you are unenlightened but they're going to fall off of you if you're enlightened and of course they stick to him and he's like oh my god there's flowers all over me I don't know what to do and she's like right and then the next thing she does is she's like here let's try it again and she turns him into a woman and he's like oh my god I'm like female I have this polluted female form and she's like but do you understand what you understood before and he's like yes I think <laughs> And she's like, okay, <laughs> right? And so kind of the lesson of the story is like, there are appearances and there are like mental biases that we have and hangups that we have that prevent us from seeing things as they truly are. And one of those biases that we have, or one of those mental projections that we have is the, the bias or the projection, the idea that, that there is gender and that gender matters to enlightenment, which ultimately it doesn't, I would argue. I think these conversations that we're having with all these different stories and narratives give a good sense of the fluidity and malleability of Buddhism mm -hmm. at this time in this place. And we've seen that there is an official sanctioned state Buddhism, but that there also are a lot of maybe more localized traditions. And so that does lead me to ask, are there any competing religious beliefs or systems that are coexisting or maybe not coexisting in medieval Japan. Uh, one that might come to mind for me is Shintoism and whether that is intersecting at all. So I mentioned earlier that Buddhism came in as part of a Chinese diplomatic mission to one of the states on the Japanese archipelago. You know, we think of Japan today as being the, the nation state that is the Japanese archipelago, but it, it had its origins in one of many sort of kingdoms, I suppose you could say, or cultures on the archipelago. So anyway, the Chinese diplomatic mission came to one of these local polities, local powers, 
introduce Buddhism, introduce a writing system and stuff like that. And it, it essentially kicked off a civil war. This is in around 550 to 590 of the common era. There was a, a huge military dispute that took place. There was one clan of aristocrats called the Mononobe clan, and they had political power because I guess legend or whatever is that the, the imperial family in Japan is descended from the sun goddess. And the sun goddess is a, a kami, a deity of nature or a natural upwelling of power. And so because this clan of people could claim kinship with that divine descendants, um, that's what gave them access to power. So if you have another religious system coming in, then you potentially have a civil war, particularly because that other system that came in, uh, the Buddhist system was primarily championed by the Soga clan. The Soga clan seems to have had connections to the Korean peninsula. So not only were they members of a different religious group and potentially a different political faction, but also of a different linguistic and ethnic group. And so there was about a 30-year sort of civil war there. The upshot was that the Buddhist faction, the Soga, won. Rather than eradicate the local tradition, however, they accommodated it kind of radically. And both religious traditions ended up becoming state religions and kind of mutually reinforcing state religions, where the worship of kami, which is now known as, as Shinto, becomes more associated with rituals and rites having to do with fertility and agricultural productivity and that type of thing. And Buddhism becomes more associated with rites and rituals that have to do with suffering death, disease, dying, but also the militant protection of the state. So you see the state, which is a Shinto and a Buddhist system here, sponsoring major temples, sending numbers of the imperial family into monastic roles, and using the chanting of sutras and, and Buddhist rituals in temples to protect the state from famine, from drought, from external powers, and, and things like that. There's also mountain asceticism, which has a long history in Japan. It's not been as centralized, I suppose. It tends to be a very kind of local, it has local manifestations all over the islands. But those are kind of maybe the three, three major things that you see going on in medieval Japan. Thank you so much for this. It's really great to cover both state-sponsored Buddhism, but then also think about all of these other religious systems and local threads that are happening at the same time. To return a little bit to place, I wonder if we might consider now how the distance between the Japanese archipelago and sacred sites in India, in Central Asia, might have been felt. For example, do we see any architecture that's specifically modeled on Indian stupas, or is there any desire to acquire relics of the Buddha and other figures? Yeah, the the stupas that you see in in South Asia, they're, they basically become pagodas, right, uh, in East Asia and in Japan. And so they take on a, a local structure that in part has to do with you know, the availability of local construction materials. So less of a kind of earth-based, lower, more horizontal kind of mound-like structure is what you would see in, in South Asia. Um, that gets more and more vertical as you move into East Asia, in part because of the real ready availability of timber that is big enough and tall enough and strong enough to, to uh, support a multi-tiered structure. But the same kind of, even though the external structure of, of a stupa shifts to that of a pagoda and kind of gets expanded and made much more vertical, the conceptual architecture of it is the same. 
in the sense of the different layers of the stupa are repeated in different layers of the pagoda and the charging power of the stupa and the charging power of a pagoda are essentially the same. And that is a, a relic of some sort. And so in East Asian and medieval Japan, you see pagodas are structured around a central beam that and my dad was a, a construction site manager. So he would have me say it is not a load bearing beam. <laughs> It is a, a structural stabilizer. So it's a central uh, central pillar. And that pillar actually does not touch the ground. The pillar points at the ground and in a, a cavity in the ground right beneath that central pillar is typically an interred relic. And yeah, there was a big search for there to be relics in Japan. Certainly with the kind of malleability of where enlightenment comes from and the idea that a sutra can be a piece of enlightened discourse, whether or not it was uttered by the Buddha, transfers into the realm of relics as well, because other holy people can also produce relics, similar to the way that, you know, saints in the Christian tradition can produce relics. You know, not everything needs to come from Jesus kind of thing. So you certainly have relics that come from that. People go for like dreams and, and they go into like multi-day fasting and kind of regimes to produce relics. And so people will talk about a certain ritual having produced three grains of relic or something like that, that then they'll uh, enshrine some things. But yeah, the number of the historical Buddha's teeth that exist in Japan is way more than the number of teeth any human being should ever have in their body. So there's the um, the fanciful creation of relics, uh, certainly. Statues can also serve as relics in a way. There's a tradition of, it's called namahotoke, of living statues. And one of the most famous is at Seidyoji in Kyoto. And it claims to be a sculpture that was made from the Buddha in life. It was, you know, supposedly made and then transferred to China and then stolen from China by a Japanese monk and enshrined and things like that. So, so there's all kinds of interesting relic things going on. But I think what you do see is an awareness, as you're saying, both of the distance between Japan and South Asia, and also a longing to overcome that distance through a kind of miraculous localization. This story reminds me, it's a, it's a very close parallel, I feel, to the acquisition of the reliquary of St. Foy, who is stolen because she would like to be stolen by mm. certain monks and then transferred to Konk. <laughs> um, exactly, right? Yeah. Relics, relics have desires too. They need to go where they need to go and yes. they'll find a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you also I, have stories in Japan, sorry, of trees, you know, and someone will, oh. will like find a tree and they'll be like, this tree, this tree is alive and this tree has has an icon in it and the tree will ask to be carved and, and a carver will come and like carve the icon out of the tree and then that's a relic. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That, that makes the art historian in me very happy. <laughs> nice. So aside from architecture and, you know, relics, it seems that, you know, there's also developing this really strong artistic tradition within Buddhism in Japan. And we've talked a little bit about icons, but is there any particularly preferred medium for art or visually conveying auspiciousness in this context? There's a whole wonderful grab bag of options, really. You've got everything from statues carved out of uh, kinoki, like a cedar or cypress that are two and three and four stories tall, these enormous sculptures. You've got stone sculptures, calligraphy, and the creation of sort of luxury sutras that are on indigo dyed paper with 
with like gold and silver ink and stuff like that. I mean, you've got you've got those sorts of things. You've got icons being carved into trees, statues made of all kinds of different metals, sutras being created from fingernails. Oh, I did get your eyebrows to go up. Okay, awesome. <laughs> yeah, so sutras being created from fingernails, right? The idea that like you could take your fingernail pa- pairings and use them to spell out the words of sutras. Yuck. Anyway, uh, there that's are some delicious. No. <laughs> that's exciting to me and it's also so wonderful because you have this material splendor or I don't know if we would call that about the fingernails but material (laughs) splendor and yet on texts that are or for texts that are often expounding on nothingness yes so there's this lovely contrast I think that makes sense though because I think when people hear the word nothingness in English they think of like nihilist nothingness but that's not really what it's about and the Buddhist sense of nothingness is really the idea that nothing exists exists in and of itself. Everything exists in a texture of relationship. And so the Buddhist idea of of nothingness is like, you know, show me a mother without a child. You can't have the one without the other. So the child can pass away, right? But there has to have been some sort of relation there before you can have the thing called called a mother. Or, you know, show me a, a Buddha without a community of believers. There's a great story that's in uh, Tricycle Magazine about a guy named Mark Rogeson in Woodstock, New York. Uh, it's called 13 Ways of Looking at a Madman. And it's a really interesting meditation on, right? Like, so you have someone who might be exhibiting signs of enlightened understanding, but at times doesn't have a community that sees that. And instead they see someone who is who is mentally unbalanced or who is a hoarder, or who is unsound in some ways. And it really takes a community of people to recognize him as a potentially being with religious insight to really kind of activate, right? So so he can't be an enlightened being without a community who sees him as an enlightened being. And that's more the, the Buddhist idea of nothingness. Absolutely. I think that's a really good nuanced clarification. I do think that we've talked, we've talked about a lot of stories today, including like the Satsua and other various texts. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if we might also turn and talk about the role of specifically stories about the Buddha, Mm -hmm. the Jataka tales, and what their role was in Japan. For those who are not familiar with the genre, the Jataka tales refer to stories about the previous births of the historical Buddha. Mm -hmm. So for example, a personal favorite of mine, which happens to be on a stone sculpture that we have at the Khalifa Museum of Art tells the story of the Buddha that he's born in a previous life as a woodpecker and he cleverly helps a lion remove a piece of bone that is lodged in the lion's throat and later when the woodpecker is hungry he asks the lion to share in his meal with him but the lion refuses. In result, a nature spirit asks the woodpecker why he doesn't just gouge out the eyes of the lion in revenge since he's not sharing his food, even though he had helped him previously. But the woodpecker simply states that kind actions should not be done in the hopes of gaining a return. And, you know, there are several of these stories. They're the subject of artworks and texts, and they're really fascinating. And I'm just curious if they play a role in in Japanese Buddhism. Definitely. You do see collections of Jataka tales and Jataka tales, these tales of the previous incarnations of the being that would become the Buddha, show up in Setsuwa collections or explanatory tale collections. And they're often kind of heavily reworked and almost kind of referred to parenthetically in those tales as if everyone 
knew the story like oh yeah this is the one about the rabbit that sacrifices himself to the holy man yes 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 right that kind of thing so they become these kind of stand-in stories typically for examples of qualities that a being would want to develop on their way to enlightenment like forbearance and wisdom and and that type of thing one of the interesting things i think of about jataka tales is that they're not tales of a saint that the previous incarnations of the being that would become the Buddha was deeply imperfect and was subhuman. He was an animal and some, he's a mosquito, he's a fly, right? He's he's a a dog, he's a chicken, Uh, right? These these different kinds of of things, right? Sometimes he's a human being, but one of the other Jataka that I really like is of a merchant who's walking into town and he sees a laborer and his son working side by side in a wood shop and the laborer's hands are busy and he's got a mosquito on his head and he's like ah son will you get that mosquito on my head will you whack it and the son without thinking about it doesn't put down his axe and just whacks the mosquito and the merchant is like i kind of saw that coming and i didn't do anything about it and that's the jataka and i'm like that is a deeply imperfect previous incarnation for the people who would become a buddha so i think one of the ways that it shows up is like sure some particular jataka show up in sets of our collections but also the general idea of like the imperfectness of us all and the need for us all to work on a lengthy path toward perfection, which I think is great. You know, the transmutation of beings across different species, for instance, is also cool. You get Japanese versions of Jataka kind of riffs, like some of my favorite are you know, you've got someone who's like, I've been trying to to recite this sutra and I've memorized all 26,000 characters of it, but I always forget these two. And then they receive a dream that like, actually, that's because in your last life, you were a bookworm and you ate those two words out of the text. So you need to like go back to this temple and you need to find that text and it's in this box and you need to repair it and put it back in the box. And then when you get home, you'll be able to remember those two words. <laughs> and so like you see that kind of energy from the Jataka tale getting actualized in different versions of Setsuwa. That is a really good story. (laughs) There's just such a component of these that they're also entertaining. You know, they tell us something, but they also, they're entertaining stories as well. Buddhism has got a good sense of humor, right? Yeah. (laughs) Let me turn the conversation to your first book, Miracles of Book and Body, Buddhist Textual Culture and Medieval Japan. In this book, you map some of the formal aspects of Buddhist rhetoric across boundaries of language, time, geography, and genre to speak more generally about Mahayana Buddhist notions of the power and the presence of the written word. For the benefit of our audience, could you summarize the overarching argument of your book? What do you hope readers will take away from your study? Well, if people have gotten this far in listening to the podcast, they've probably realized that I like to tell stories. So although you asked for a brief answer, I'm going to actually back up and give you a story, if that's okay, which I think gets at the the core. So this is the story I start the book with, and it's this guy named Myoe. Uh, he was a Japanese Buddhist monk, uh, lived from 1173 to 1232 of the Common Era. And he had been a monastic for a long time, shaved head, kept the monastic vows and all that kind of stuff, and was given to poring over the sutras day after day. 
one of the features of sutras is that they often list all the people who were in audience or list a lot of the people who were in the audience for an enlightened being sermon. And at the end of that sermon, the Buddha will say, everyone who's in this audience will achieve enlightenment someday. And so Myoe thought, if I could find my name in one of the sutras, then I would know that I would achieve enlightenment someday and I can stop worrying. And I think I love him because he was so anxious. I'm an anxious person. I feel you, Mioe, right? So he wanted to find his name in those sutras. And he decided, kind of Van Gogh-like, that he could cut off his ear. And if he cut off his ear and then looked in the sutras, maybe he would find his name in them, right? And he was like, I can't cut off my nose because then I'll like get snot on the sutras. <laughs> and I can't, I can't cut off, uh, you know, my eyelids because like then I'm going to like bleed on the sutras and things like that. Uh, I can't cut off my hands because then I can't do the mudras when I'm doing the sutras, but I can cut off my ear and that should be okay. I'll still be able to hear. And so he did that and then looked back in the sutras to find his name. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, that's crazy, man. <laughs> like That's some deep self-harm. Like, no, love yourself. Um, on the other hand, I'm like, fascinating, right? Like, what was this guy thinking? And what he was thinking was that there was a direct relationship between his physical body and the sacred text he was reading. And that if he could change the one, he could change the other. So he really kind of believed in a sort of deep alchemical relationship in which his body and the sacred text were not different things, but were, were interworked and interrelated things. And that's kind of what I wanted to get at and, and think about in the book. The book is really about like, how do people read? How do they interact with sacred texts? Why do they do that? What do they think is going to happen when they do that? And thinking through like what it means to think of a sacred text, not as a piece of content that is out there somewhere that is ultimately unrelated to you, but to think about a sacred text as something that is like deeply interwoven with our own physical existence. And so on the one hand, the book is about medieval Japan and it's about Buddhism and it's about miracles and things like that. But I think the bigger goal of the book is to really ask us to open our minds to imagine anew the possibilities of reading and the possibilities of writing and to do those in ways that might seem kind of crazy. What if we didn't blow off Mioe as just like, that man was troubled? But what if we said like, that man was convinced enough that his dirty, tired body and this beautiful sacred text were so closely intertwined that he could change one and change the other? And what if we accepted that as a core insight? What would we see instead? That is honestly a beautiful way to talk about reading and writing. Just, wow, beautiful. The story of Mioe illustrates very well something you trace throughout your book this notion of a deeply embodied and sensorial experience of the sutras and the setsua. You mention, and I quote, that sutras and setsua work together to leverage people into a position of spiritual receptivity and to instruct them how to engage in the devotional practices of reading, reciting, copying, and worshipping the sutras. Both genres maintain that sustained contact with Buddhist scripture has the power to bring about miraculous changes in the devotee's physical reality, drawing attention to the materiality of sutra texts and their physical reception in the human body. Could you speak a bit more about the connection between the devotee's body and the sacred text? I ended up being inspired by the plant world. <laughs> bit of a segue, right? And there is a tradition in Japanese Buddhism, it's called Somoku Jōbutsu, right? Grasses and trees also become Buddhas. 
but I ended up becoming inspired by the plant world. And in my life outside of academia, I spent a lot of time gardening and growing things. And I, I was very interested in the ways in which plants can't move, right? They can't get from place to place, and yet they spread everywhere. And I started thinking about how books and texts are kind of the same way. Books can't move, and yet they spread everywhere. And so I started kind of like my story about Mioe, where I was like, what if we take him seriously and think from there? I thought, well, what if we think about books as symbiotic life forms? And instead of being like, no, Charlotte Eubanks is crazy, <laughs> deeply, deeply troubled person there, right? What if we were like, let's accept what they're arguing for a moment and like think about books as a symbiotic life form and what that might mean. So sutras are actually really explicit about this. You can search any number of sutras and you'll find a pretty consistent set of things that they tell their readers to do. You're supposed to accept the sutras, to take in their teachings. You're supposed to uphold them or keep them. Sometimes people literalize this by wearing sutras on their chests so that as they walked, the sutra would tap against their diaphragm and beat on them right? So you're supposed to accept, you're supposed to keep, you're supposed to read the sutras. And there's these beautiful scenes of reading that you see a lot in Setsuwa literature that kind of explains what happens with these acts of reading. But you read them so much that you internalize them, that you can then leave the external sutra behind because it's written on the inside of your body. People carve this, uh, describe this as, as carving this onto the, the bones and marrow of your body. So you accept, you keep, you read, and you internalize and recite you recite from memory enough that then you've not only internalized, but you've really digested the sutra and you can explain it to someone else in your own words, in words that they can hear. So you you preach it. And then once you've done all those things, then you copy it. And then you put that next copy out into the world and someone else picks it up and accepts and keeps it and reads and recites it and things like that. And I thought, well, what does that do for a sutra? Like, well, <laughs> it's like a sexual reproduction cycle, right? It, it allows a sutra to replicate itself. It allows a sutra to move from place to place and that kind of thing. Um, so it actually gives a sutra text a lot of benefits. But it's, I'm like, so we're, for, for a while I was disturbed. I was like, did I just talk myself into thinking that sutras are parasites? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's mutually beneficial symbiosis is what I eventually arrived at, right? Um, this this idea that, that once the the sutra kind of comes into you, it's not like the movie Alien, right? It's it's like the opposite of the movie Alien, where where what it brings to you supposedly is health and longevity and reduction of suffering, both in this existence and coming existences and things like that. So I think there's a way in which sutras themselves are and talk about themselves as symbiotic life forms that depend upon ingestion within the human body. You are certainly drawing extremely rich and certainly thought-provoking comparisons. Let me put on my educator hat now, though. How has your work, broadly, perhaps, translated into the humanities classroom? Do you teach some of these materials in your undergraduate classes? How do you frame them if you do? And what do you hope students will gain from the experience? Yeah, I do, I do teach this. In fact, this semester, I just finished teaching a class on literary cultures of Buddhism. Basically, our goals were to, like, on the one hand, 
let's understand how how Buddhism works as a conceptual system and as a religious system. And on the other hand, let's let's think about how people in different times and places have formed textual communities in, around, and through Buddhist texts. The way we did that is we started off by playing a board game. There's a board game that was created in Japan in the 1800s. Uh, I happened to own a copy of an 1848 edition of it, I, which I got at a used bookstore one time. So strong proponent of random purchases at used bookstores. And the board game is called the Zenaku Gokuraku Dochu Zue, an illustrated guide to the paths of good and evil, <laughs> right? And it's basically a shoots and ladders game where you start in Jambudvipa, the Buddhist here and now, uh, earth, right? And you cast uh, lots. Um, you can either at every roll cast good deeds, evil deeds, faith, or doubt. And depending on what you cast, you move throughout the board game. And pieces, you know, parts of the board game are the realm, the six realms of transmigration. So heavenly beings, humans, animals, warring spirits, you know, hungry ghosts and hell. Um, three of the squares are the three poisons of of anger and ignorance and craving. And you've got the like the six perfections and the five evil acts and the, you have know, all these things that's on the board game. And so I was like, first and foremost, we're going to play the board game. Uh, we played it for two weeks in class. The board game doesn't come with a rule book. So I was like, you have to create the rule book now, right? Player's guide. <laughs> so we wrote a player's guide, basically how to play Buddhism. And then we looked at Buddhist cultures, several different uh, iterations of it. So we, we read a bunch of Mahayana sutras, which introduce as a South Asian tweak of classical Buddhism that introduces the idea of a bodhisattva, an enlightened being who stays in the world to act for the deliverance of all other beings. And so we looked at some of those. And when we finished that unit, then they had to remake seven of the squares on the game board based on what we'd read. And then we looked at, um, you know, crazy wisdom in East Asia, like Zen koans and like mad. Whatever. And then they had to remake seven pieces of the board game based on that. We looked at early European apprehensions of Buddhism, including Buddha, the Catholic saint. So Buddha is actually a Catholic saint in the Orthodox tradition. His <laughs> Barlam and Josephat. Yeah, Josephat, Buddhist saint, has a... <laughs> So you can be Catholic and Buddhist at the same time. <laughs> anyway, um, so we read the the Barlam and Josephat medieval Euro, um, European text, as well as some 19th century stuff. And they remade some pieces of the board game. We looked at the Beats, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, um, Harriet Mullen and stuff. And then we looked at uh, the resurgence of Buddhism amongst um, the Dalits in contemporary South Asia and the ways in which that group wed Black Panther-inspired politics with Buddhist conversion to think about how you would write a Buddhist literature of protest. And so now they've remade the whole board game, and now they have to rewrite the rule book um, based on what they've learned. So that kind of takes some of these ideas of like ingesting and, and really thinking about sacred texts, not as just their content, but as things that actually interact with human bodies and change the world that we live in. Yes. As a board game aficionado myself, I am always a strong advocate for gamifying the classroom, as you know, and also for these kinds of collaborative theorizations from the ground up. We get so much from these kinds of exercises. Alas, we are approaching the end of our time together. But before we go, I wanted to give you some space to talk about your current projects. I know, for example, that you are studying medieval Buddhist conceptions of sound. What aspect or aspects of your current research projects are you perhaps most excited about? One of the projects that I'm working on most actively is to read. I'm doing a lot of reading in sound studies as a kind of contemporary interdiscipline. And 
I'm also at the same time working through a set of Buddhist manuals about chanting that come out of the medieval period. So I've got some, excuse me, some archival texts that I've correct, collected, including a chanting manual. And, you know, one of the few silver linings of COVID is that Buddhist monastic universities in Japan during COVID, I mean, you can't really very well gather a bunch of people together in a room and chant at each other without like spreading virus. So the upshot was some of these universities developed YouTube channels. And they didn't put any controls under who could register for their classes. So I registered for and took a number of monastic classes and chanting the sutras via YouTube during COVID. Uh, and so I'm thinking about what what kind of conceptual work are Buddhist um, recitation practices doing for helping us think about um, how the human voice um, as a kind of vibration operates as, as touch at a distance and the ways that that suggests an embodied but also ethical reading of the relationship of human body to landscape. And I'm hoping that now I can think about that for a good long while and come back and talk to people in sound studies about it. So far, some good luck. I've got a piece coming out in a, a collected volume called Sound and Affect. It's a keywords volume and I've like first keyword volume that uses an East Asian word <laughs> and sound studies, I think is a keyword. I could be wrong if I am. Someone else is out there, let me know. And then a piece that's going to come out in post-medieval, which is an early kind of attempt to think in that direction. But I'm hoping to do a lot more in that regard in the next couple of years. Great. I, I would say I'm looking forward to seeing your work, but maybe I should say I'm looking forward to hearing your work since it's about sound. Because <laughs> clearly I like to talk. So like, yuck, 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 yuck. No, this is all really fascinating. This does, um, as a final sort of wrap up question, yeah. is there anything that perhaps we didn't ask that maybe we should have asked or talked about? I think this is not like something you should have asked. I think it's something I should have said that I really wanted to say, which is that I think like people who are doing podcasts, like the ecology of intellectual work that you are really cultivating and sharing is beautiful, rich, and generous, right? I think that there is something really, really powerful about bringing people into conversation about books and ideas. I mean, because anybody can go read the book, but that's a kind of solitary experience and to actually have a conversation where you're listening to people play off of each other and spin ideas off of each other in real time is really cool. It's also very humanizing, right? Like in these kinds of podcasts, you know, like on whether it's on New Books Network or the best podcast of them all, the multicultural middle ages, right? Where you learn about like the people who are actually writing these books, how they came to their projects, what they're working on next. I think it really kind of demystifies a lot about the thinking and writing process. And so I don't know how uh, the profession is going to wrestle with providing or recognizing the kind of intellectual labor that goes into this, right? Like, but it's, it's substantial and it's, you know, it's field changing. So thank you. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for seeing our mission through and for helping us and being so generous today with, with your knowledge and your expertise and really helping shed light on this topic. I definitely learned a lot and found this really, really fascinating. So thank you so much. <laughs> yes, I must join me in thanking you, Charlotte. This has been such an enriching but also really fun conversation. Thank you for your time, your expertise and your enthusiasm. It was really a treat to have you with us today. And with that, we end another episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages. Thank you for tuning in.
This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beattie, Jonathan Correa-Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anne.